In this interview, I'm joined by Bhante Vimalaramsi, author, American Buddhist monk, and abbot of the Dhamma Sukha Meditation Center in Annapolis, Missouri. In this episode, Bhante Vimalaramsi describes how 20 years of dedicated practice of Mahasi-style Vipassana meditation left him unsatisfied, and how discarding that method and learning to relax and smile unlocked the spiritual path. Bhante describes how his current teaching approach, based not on Buddha Ghosh's Vasudhimaga, but on Vimalaramsi's interpretation of earlier Buddhist scriptures, sees anything from 25 to 50% of his students attain Nibbana in a single 10-day retreat. Bhante Vimalaramsi also details the four-path model of enlightenment found in the Theravada tradition, and claims that his advanced Anagami students experience a permanent cessation of sexual activity and the ability to meditate in stillness for up to seven days without breathing or heartbeat. So without further ado, Bhante Vimalaramsi. Hello. Hello, how are you doing? Good. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you too. We have weird stuff happening here with the internet, being oh, yeah. in the mountains and all. Yeah, I, I lived in Ojai, California, yes. and the internet there is horrendous. Huh? So I can sympathize. <laughs> <laughs> you you live where Krishnamurti lived. That's right. That's right. They have Meditation yeah. Mount there. Have you been there? Uh, years ago. Yeah. I've, I met him a couple of different times. Really? Yeah. And what, what were the circumstances of your meeting Krishnamurti? Well, he, he was giving talks and I heard about it. So I went and, and that's where I met Ramdas one time. Ramdas was directing traffic for parking. <laughs> when was so, this? Yeah. Oh, is uh, yeah 85 84 80 i i don't remember exactly mm -hmm. it was quite a while ago some years then two three years yeah. before your ordination oh yeah yeah mm -hmm. in 86 <laughs> pante vimalaramsi welcome to the podcast oh thank you i uh, look forward to being with you for a while so i'm very interested in the origins of how it was uh, you became interested in meditation. Uh, you've said elsewhere that you began meditating in 1974, practicing uh, Vipassana yeah. without a teacher, just sort of in, in the wild. Uh, so I'm curious uh, about about those those early days, you were also reading Carlos Castaneda and doing all sorts of other explorations. Um, how was it that Well, could you tell us something a little of your upbringing and how it was you became interested in meditation? Uh, like just about everybody that's interested in meditation, I was suffering and I wanted to find a way out. During that time, there was a lot of Indian gurus that were coming to the country and teaching meditation. And I went to uh, talk to or lis listen to their, their talks about meditation. And I went to some of their classes, but they didn't teach how to meditate. They just said, well, just sit and meditate. And uh, then I finally ran across somebody that uh, 
was teaching Mahasi-style meditation, the Vipassana. And he ran a Theosophical Society bookstore. And I ran across Mahasi Sayadaw's uh, books on meditate. And it was the clearest kind of meditation that I that I ever ran across. It gave verific details about how to do it. And I actually uh, started sitting once a week, where I was sitting every day, but I was going to classes once a week for a little while. And then I decided that I wanted to know more about it. So I uh, quit my job. I, I was a manager of a fairly large store at the time and decided that I was gonna do a self-retreat for two weeks. And I really got into the meditation, but I ran across some places that I didn't know uh, what was happening and decided I needed to find a, uh, a teacher. In one of Mahasi Saida's books, he said that he was involved with the uh, I can't remember the, it was some kind of sasana, uh, the Buddha Sasana Society or something like that. So I called up uh, an operator and I said, this is a very peculiar thing. I want to find out if you can find the Buddha Sasana Society in Burma. I want to talk to them. And she said, okay, I'll work on this for a little bit. And the next day she called up and said, I have Burma on the line. And I, I was real excited by that. And I told him that I was, I wanted to come to Burma and learn how to do meditation. But at the time they were only allowing visitors one week in Burma and then you had to leave. So they said, it's not worth it to come for only one week. So there's uh, people in Massachusetts that are teaching and there's, there's a teacher in California and I was living in California at the time. And that was where I started doing the more serious kinds of meditation. So I, uh, wound up staying at that meditation center for about a year and a half. And I went to Hawaii for a couple of years teaching meditation from what I knew. And uh, then I came back to what we call the mainland and and about a year being with people as they died. I wanted to see what kind of visions they had right before they died and that sort of thing. And that was quite educational. And then I heard that 
one of Mahasi Sayadaw's uh, teachers that traveled with him was going to be living in San Francisco. So I went up to San Francisco and I, I met him and asked him if I could be his attendant, which means uh, basically I was a chief bottle washer and laundry man and house cleaner and things like that, anything that would help him and take him around and drive wherever he wanted. And I wound up staying there for a couple of years. Then I went to, uh, I, I left the, the monastery with Usil Ananda, who is my teacher. And uh, I decided to become a layman. And I wanted to see if I could make a lot of money and what it was like to be a layman. And I did that. And then I decided, well, okay, I know I can do that. So it's no big deal. So I um, went to, uh, well, let, let me backtrack just a minute. While I was with Usila Nanda, I ordained for a couple of weeks as a full monk. Then I went to Thailand and ordained and I, uh, as soon as I put the robes on, it's like they had a hold of me and they wouldn't let me go. But I was thinking that I would just be a monk for about a year and I could uh, get into all of these different meditation states and all of the, you know, just really go for it. And that was 36 years ago. So I, in that time, I've done uh, about 12 three-month retreats. I did an eight-month retreat. I did a retreat, all with Mahasi Sayadaw's style meditation. Mahasi style meditation, they use um, the Visuddhi Magga, a commentary as their encyclopedia for meditation. But after doing a two-year retreat in Burma, uh, I was successful with what they were teaching, but I wasn't satisfied with what they were teaching. It, was, it just seemed like there was something missing. Now, I, uh, before I went to Burma, I, I had set up a, a monastery or meditation center in uh, by, by Kuala Lumpur in Malaysia. And when I came back after two years, they wanted me to teach meditation, but I couldn't teach them the Vipassana because I didn't have any confidence in it. So I started teaching loving kindness meditation. And 
I stopped teaching in the standard way of their talking with uh, Dhamma talks. I started softening my approach a little bit so that people would have a softer approach to meditation. Now, I spent 12 years in Asia. And during that time, I had some questions that I asked a, a lot of the major teachers in Thailand and Burma and uh, Singapore and other, other places. And I always ask them the same question. And that is, what exactly is craving? Uh, it's real big in the text and I studied the text. I know what it says. But nobody actually had any answer. Oh, craving is just desire. And that, that was disappointing, at least, because it seemed like the meditations that were being taught were more intellectual understanding of meditation rather than the actual practice of meditation. So a lot of people that I was involved with, they knew a lot about meditation, but they didn't know exactly what they were talking about. And they were saying what their teacher said or what some other book said. So they didn't have direct experience. Now in 1995, uh, Bhikkhu Bodhi came out with his Majjhima Nikaya uh, middle-length sayings uh, book. And I got real excited about that. And I had been invited to be at uh, the largest uh, Sri Lankan monastery in Kuala Lumpur and give talks every other Friday night. The, the head monk there, he said he was getting old and he wanted somebody to take over every, every other Friday because that's when he, he would give talks to three or 400 people. Now, when Bhikkhu Bodhi's book came out, I was teaching loving kindness meditation. I was teaching a, a retreat. And of course, the first sutta that I went to was the Satipatthana Sutta, the mindfulness of breathing, uh, the, the foundations of mindfulness. And I saw two, two parts of the instruction that I'd never seen before, I'd never heard before. I was always taught that either you put your attention at your nostril tip or at your abdomen and you watch the breath and you watch it very closely. So you see the beginning, the middle and the, the end of the in-breath and the pause and the in middle and uh, beginning, middle and end of the out-breath. So it was they were teaching how strongly folks on the breath as a meditation object. But 
not the instructions in the sutta itself. The instructions in the sutta say that on the in-breath, you experience your whole body. On your out-breath, you experience the whole body. On the in-breath, you tranquilize a bodily formation. On the out-breath, tranquilize a bodily formation. Now, I'd been practicing meditation for a lot of years, and, and I did a lot of it. So I had good concentration. But the, the tranquilizing the bodily formation, I, I didn't know what that meant. Nobody else did either. And when I was doing so much meditation, I almost constantly had tension and tightness in my head. And uh, I started thinking about that, and maybe this is the, the tension that what I should be relaxing on the in and out breath. So I relaxed the tension that was in my mind. And right after that, I noticed that my mind was clear, very observant, and there was no distracting thoughts. It was just clear mind. And I thought, wow, that's really something I'd never seen before. So I said, okay, let's try it again. So I did it again. And I kept doing it all the way back to my room. And I wound up sitting for about two hours. Every time any distraction came, I relaxed the tightness in my mind. And I went deeper in the meditation than I had ever gone before. I mean, it was truly an amazing experience. And I became real enthusiastic about that. Now, about that time, there was a monk by the name of Venerable Punaji. He's from Sri Lanka. He came to visit the head monk, uh, K. Sri Damananda, in, in Kuala Lumpur. And K. Sri Damananda told Punaji that I was teaching meditation. So Punaji pulled me aside one morning and said, how do you teach? So I told him how I was teaching meditation. And he stopped me and he said, you're using the language of the Visuddhimagga. Why don't you let that go and use the language of the suttas? And I went, why didn't I think of that? And I said, okay. So when I got the, the book from Bhikkhu Bodhi, I started reading all kinds of suttas because I was really enthusiastic. And I started teaching uh, about how to let go of craving, how to let go of distractions in your mind. Uh, you're restless, you're sleepy, you uh, have lust come up, you have anger come up, all of these different and doubts. 
you have all of these different things arise. But I started realizing that they were, you, they can be all categorized in one way. Just call them distractions. Anything that pulls your attention away from your object of meditation, recognize it, release the distraction, don't make a big deal out of it, don't stay with it, relax the tightness in your head, and then I did something that's not in the suttas formally, but it, it implies it in a lot of places. And that is to smile. Because that helps your mind be uplifted. And then you bring this quiet mind that has no distractions in it, that has a little bit of joy with it, back to your object of meditation and stay with your object of meditation for as long as you can. So I was real big on having people smile a lot. In Malaysia at the time, the Malay ran the government. About a third of the population was Chinese, and that's who I was dealing with mostly. And a third of the population was Indian. Excuse me. And I noticed that the Chinese were walking around grumpy. They were walking around very serious. So when I started teaching them that they needed to practice loving kindness and smiling, that made a big difference in their lives. And that really helped them a lot. And I was at that monastery uh, every other uh, week I was giving Dhamma talks to large groups of people and I started including some of the ideas of uh, at the time people only believed that mindfulness of breathing that was the only way you could attain Nibbana but that doesn't say that in the suttas. So I, I was trying to convince people that if you did loving kindness, you can attain Nibbana and that sort of thing. After a couple of years of being in, uh, in that position, and I was teaching meditation every night to different groups all over Kuala Lumpur, uh, I decided I wanted to come home. And I saw that things were starting to heat up in America. And I knew we were going to be going through rough times here. A little bit. So I came back to America. And the first week I gave, there was a man I was listening very closely to what I was giving and he wrote down, he said, this is exactly what you're teaching. And he wrote it on a little post-it. And he said, uh, you release, relax, re-smile, return, repeat. 
and he called that the five R's. I've since changed that to six R's, but that's what he, he, he said, and that's exactly what you're teaching. And through my studies and, and going through the suttas so many times, I started recognizing that when you practice the six R's, you're practicing right effort. And there's four parts to right effort, but I add two more to it. I put the recognize, so you recognize, re re release, and that means you don't keep your attention on the hindrance. You let it be there by itself and relax and smile and return to your uh, object of meditation, which I, I'm teaching loving kindness, so that's what that is. And stay with that as long as you can. And as I got into more and more of the suttas, I started really release, realizing that there's more uh, sneaky ways that they put in the Four Noble Truths in the suttas that you didn't recognize it as such, but they were there. And I started also recognizing that when you're practicing the six R's, you're practicing the fourth noble truth, the path leading to the cessation of suffering. And uh, in America, any kind of misdirect a lot of ideas about everything in life is suffering. That's the first noble truth. And that's not the first noble truth. There is suffering in life. Not everything in life is suffering. And the second noble truth, there's a cause of it. What's the cause? The cause is craving. And the third noble truth is the use of the six R's of letting go of the craving. And the fourth is the detailed way of doing that. So when you're practicing the six R's, you're practicing exactly the eightfold path at that time. So it was kind of a revelation that, and I started looking more closely at the different suttas and what I do when I give a, a retreat is I read a sutta. Sometimes I don't get all the way through the sutta because I start uh, talking about what it's talking about. And uh, when I started Putting the Vasudhi Maga away, and I started teaching the, the meditation retreats by reading the suttas, I started seeing that everybody was progressing a lot faster than they were from just the old standard Dhamma talks. And uh, I was pretty amazed by that. 
Now, at the time, Vipassana is the only way. That's what they were, were talking about. I had 20 years of Vipassana is the only way and found out that it's not the only way. But the thing is, when you're practicing loving kindness meditation, you're going to be going through the jhanas. Now, at the time, jhanas were looked on as bad. Oh, you're only going to you're only going to get attached to the jhana and all of this kind of stuff. And I started seeing that all of my students were progressing very fast through the jhanas. And it was pretty amazing to watch the speed of that happening. So over the, the next few years, every retreat I gave, I was starting to get more and more interested in uh, reading the suttas. And one of the reasons that I started reading the suttas is because I have dyslexia. So when I read things, words jump around and do all kinds of things. So I wanted to train myself so that I could read in a proper way. And people were going through all of the jhanas. They were getting into the arupa jhanas very quickly. Now, I never gave a retreat in America more than two weeks because you don't need any more than that. But when I was doing the Mahasi method, I was doing three-month retreats and I still wound up not really understanding what I was doing. But one of the things about um, the suttas that's very important that a lot of people don't really understand is they're graduated in such a way that is completely uh, systematic in a way that the suttas teach. Uh, when I was giving talks and teaching in uh, Malaysia, I had some 90-minute cassette tapes for the Dhamma talks. And I brought those along with me after being in, in Malaysia for 12 years. I brought those talks back with me. And I gave them to somebody and they started listening to the talks and they said, the talks that you gave then are really close to the talks that you're, you're giving right now. And nobody's that consistent. Now this is over more than 25 years of giving Dhamma talks that I'm uh, giving basically the same Dhamma talks. And I ran across another teacher that listened to some of the Dhamma talks I was giving and he, he came up to me afterwards and said, you're, you're the most consistent speaker I've ever run across. 
And a lot of people, when they get ready to do a Dhamma talk, they have to sit down and think about what they're going to say. I don't do that because it's already there. I already have the sutta. I know what it's going to say, and I know how I can interact with the sutta to make it more plain. So now I'm giving 10-day retreats, and there are times when people follow the directions very closely. They're so successful with the meditation and with the sutta guidance, they can attain Nibbana in a 10-day retreat. And this hasn't happened a few times. This has happened a lot. And I have students that uh, go even deeper than being uh, at the first stage of awakening, Sotapanna. They go through the fruition, the fruition of Saktagami, fruition of Anagami. So worldwide, I've been traveling uh, around the world for 20 years anyway, and a lot of people, because I see everybody every day. And uh, 30, 35 was the most amount of people that I, that I would give a retreat for. But after a couple of years and being successful with the meditation, I got real popular in Indonesia and they, they wanted to make them bigger and bigger. And before long, I was giving retreats for 45 and 50 minutes or 50, 50, 45 and 50 people. Now I spend 10 minutes with each person and 45 people is 450 minutes. That's a long time. Plus, I give a Dhamma talk every day. So um, they were being more and more successful. And about half of the people that came to do their retreats were attaining at least Sotapanna. And the, uh, I, I was going there, I think I went there 10 years in a row. I was giving four, four to six retreats every time I was there. And it was very successful. And uh, the last few times that I, I went to Indonesia, they would set up uh, talks where there was two or three thousand people at the talk and I would give a Dhamma talk and then they got a chance to ask questions and that sort of thing. And then I went to India and going to India uh, India is a land of people. There's no getting around it. And they were setting up Dhamma talks for me that were, oh, it's only 3,000 people at this venue. It's 7,000 people at that venue. Oh, there's only 10,000 people here. I give Dhamma talks to. But I started seeing that the Dhamma talks were kind of in one ear and out the other. 
and I started focusing more on giving retreats. And I did that up until last year. Now I'm not going to be going uh, out of the country. It's just too difficult with the nonsense of political nonsense that's happening right now. And I'm tired and I'm getting to be an old man. <laughs> and as much as I don't like uh, recognizing that, it, it, it's just taking too long to recover after spending time in the Himalayas and then go down into Bodh Gaya and all of these different places. And there'd be a lot of uh, people that I was teaching the meditation to. Anyway, now I'm here at this center and I'll be here most of the time. I'll still travel around this country a little bit if I get invited but I don't want to go overseas anymore. I'm just going to stay here. And I'm, I'm living about in the middle of the country. So people from both, both coasts, coasts can come and have a place. But one of the stresses that I give people when I'm teaching the retreat is how to handle hindrances when they pull your attention away. Uh, in order to do that, you have to understand that every time you have a hindrance arise, it's because in the past you broke one of the precepts. And you had a guilty feeling. You said something that wasn't true. You took something that wasn't yours. You had wrong sexual activity. You gossiped. You uh, killed living beings, that sort of thing. <coughs> now, every time you have that, that experience of breaking a precept, your mind says, I shouldn't have done that. It's very quiet. But you sit in meditation and hindrances come up. That's because of past breaking of precepts. And the only way to get rid of that is by using the six R's and that relaxed step. Now, craving is the I like it, I don't like it mind. You have a feeling arise, I like it, it's pleasant. You have another feeling arise, I don't like it, it's painful. That's a definition of craving. It's the I like it, I don't like it mind. Now, what's the cause of that? Now, you have five aggregates. You have physical body. You have feeling. You have perception. Feeling and perception are always conjoined. You have formations and you have consciousness. Now, when 
a feeling arises right after that with the feeling and, and perception. Craving arises. It's either I like it or I don't like it. And that's the very beginning of the false belief in a personal self. So when you use the six R's, you're letting go of that. You're letting go of that craving. You're letting go of that cause of suffering. Now you have dependent origination. And right after craving, first you have feeling, then craving. Then you have clinging. And that's all of your thoughts, opinions, ideas about what it is you're thinking about. And you're uh, very strongly having that opinion that this is you, this is me, this is mine. Now, when you're practicing meditation, there's actually two kinds of meditation. That's just generally speaking. is one-pointed concentration. It can be momentary or it can be longer, but it is concentration. Now, what does that mean? It means that your mind is on your object of meditation and your mind is distracted. What do you do with that? You're told to let it be there by itself. If you're practicing in this way, what you're doing is you're bringing that craving back to your object of meditation. And eventually your concentration gets good enough that it suppresses hindrances from coming up. It is really nice while you're in the, the sitting, but when you come out, you still have the same old problems with the hindrances that you did before you went in. Now, when you practice what I'm teaching, your mind is on your object of meditation. It gets distracting. Now, what do you do with the distraction? You let the distraction be by itself. Relax the tightness caused by that distraction. The tightness is the craving. Now you're bringing that back to your object of meditation. You're bringing back a pure mind that has no craving in it. And you stay with your object of meditation for as long as you can without any other distractions. So that I just described to you the six R's. Now, there are certain places in, in the meditation where you can get very deep, but from the very beginning of the retreat, you're teaching yourself about hindrances and how to let them go. 
Now, the advantage of this is hindrances come up whether you're, you're sitting in meditation or you're walking around doing this or that. You still have hindrances. Now, if you practice the way that I'm teaching, you're able to recognize those hindrances when they come up and you know what to do with them. So there is true personality development with what I call tranquil wisdom insight meditation, TWIM. And when you start practicing with the six R's, the recognize, release, relax, re-smile, return, repeat, uh, you will start to get more and more, have it be more and more automatic that when a hindrance starts to come up, your mind will recognize that and it will uh, let it go uh, pretty much automatically. Now, one of the things that I do when I give a Dhamma talk is I talk a lot about definitions of things, like jhana. People say, well, jhana means concentration. No, it doesn't mean that. It means a level of understanding. Mindfulness, oh, this word is so tricky, it's unbelievable. What does mindfulness mean? Well, I can give you the definition that it works 100% of the time but doesn't work in the way that a lot of people think it does. Mindfulness is remembering to observe how mind's attention moves from one thing to another. So you have, uh, you're with your object of meditation and your mindfulness slips, it's not very strong. Then you have a distraction. How did that happen? Not why, we don't care about the why. How? People to see it more and more easily when it first starts and you can use the six R's right then and then you don't have a very long distraction. And this leads to a very different kind of personality development. So you start developing equanimity more. So it's real interesting to watch the development of people that in 10 days, when they first come to a retreat, the first day of the retreat, I always tell them something that they've never heard before in any other meditation retreat. I tell them, I want you to smile all the time. I don't care what you're doing, whether you're going to the toilet or eating or when you're walking around, smile. I want you to laugh. Now you never hear that at a meditation retreat. And I want you to have fun. Because there's uh, subtle reasons for that. And I call myself a sneaky monk because I don't generally tell people why I ask them to do things. But, uh, 
if you don't have fun, if you're over serious with the meditation, you try too hard, you give yourself a headache. And that comes from trying too hard. In school, and you had a favorite class, what kind of grade did you get in that class? Good grades, right? Why? Because it was fun. You had a good time doing it. That's why I pushed that at the retreat. I want you to have fun because you're going to take more interest in it and you're going to see more clearly how it all works. And I also tell people that they're going to be a lot smarter after this 10 days than they ever thought possible. Mostly because I'm reading the suttas and the Buddha is incredibly clear about these kind of things and how it works. And so you, you start going in your meditation and you start progressing in the meditation and you can actually feel yourself progress in from, from one day to the next. Three main meditation. One is attaining the first jhana. The next one is getting to the fourth jhana. Getting to the fourth jhana is, is like becoming an advanced meditator. You really do understand how mind works and you do see. And now you're starting to get into the mental development of the meditation where you don't have the body anymore. And the last is attaining Nibbana. Okay. Now, there's two different definitions of Nibbana. One is mundane, one is super mundane. Every time you let go of craving, every time you relax, you are experiencing Nibbana at that time. But this is the mundane Nibbana. Nibbana, ni, means no. Bana means fire. Well, that's what the Buddha called craving, a lot. So, you let go of craving every time you use the six R's. That makes you have more balanced mind and a more alert mind. So you start catching things more quickly. So it's uh, the way that I teach is interconnected with everything. And it's uh, from one, one sutta to the next, there's a logical progression of how these things work. And that's one of the reasons that so many people are so successful when they learn the meditation here in this country. There's a lot of people that have done a lot, a lot of different kinds of meditation and they're very attached to it. And my job really is just to get them to change their meditation by one simple step, and that is relax. And that'll change your entire meditation.
If you don't have that relaxed step in it, you're going off of the Buddha's path, even though you say you're following the Buddha's path. That the importance of letting go of craving can't be understated. It has to be, it is really, really, really important. So the more you relax, the more clear your mind becomes, the more balance you have in your mind, and the easier life becomes, and the more fun life becomes. I have people that write to me after they did a retreat maybe three or four years ago and tell me how much different their life is now just from doing one 10-day retreat. So it's a real interesting phenomena that, that this is happening. Uh, in this country, they're not quite as good as they are in Indonesia with being able to experience Nibbana. But about between 25 and 35% of the people that come have that experience. And I get questioned about why, why do you think you know when only the Buddha is supposed to know who's really but I have questions that I ask uh, about what's happening in their mind and how their perception of things are and um, how their physical existence is. And they, they always have the same things to say, so I have to assume that, yeah, you've had this experience. But I'll give it a retreat for 10 people and three, sometimes four, people attain at least the first stage. And I, I kind of tease some of the other students that are around that listen to me give Dhamma talks and, and listen to me interview. And I go, ho-hum, another one but it's really a special thing that's happened for them. Oh, do you have a question? <laughs> oh yeah, I have plenty of questions. That's a wonderful summary of many of the key points of your teaching. Actually, I do have a question. You're bringing up, uh, you're, you're talking about Nirvana. Yeah. And one of the key aspects of uh, your approach, I think, is this differentiation between the sutta, a style of teaching, the material of the sutta, and the later commentarial material, such as the Visuddhimagga. And you've discussed that, actually, it's illustrated in your own biography, which you gave us. Yeah. And you've, and you've already pointed to some differences there. You're talking about Nibbana, and you're talking about Sotapanna and those different levels, those four different levels, mm -hmm. the four different paths, perhaps. Right. Um, I'm wondering if you could describe how the technique, the meditation technique that you're teaching leads to Nirvana. What is Nirvana? You've described it as a everything switches off. How does that occur? Um, what are the consequences? And can you differentiate the, the different levels? Well, sure. The way that this occurs 
is by following the eightfold path, even though you don't realize you're doing purifying your mind more and more. That's the whole of doing meditation as far as I can see. It's not to just get in this blissful state and be there for a little while and then when you get out you have all of the likes and dislikes and emotional upsets. So the thing is, when you let go of craving, you are letting go of the fire of emotional upset. Now, when you're looking at dependent origination, one of the things that happens right after the clinging is the word bhava. Now, bhava has a lot of different poly uh, definitions, but mine is your habitual emotional tendency. That's what I call bhava. And that's when you, uh, you have these five aggregates, you have body, feeling, perception, formations or thoughts and consciousness. Now, when a painful feeling comes up, immediately you try to uh, think the feeling away. You don't like that feeling. I'm going to say depression. That's, that's a biggie in, in this country anyway. So you have a feeling that comes up and you're trying to think the feeling away. But feelings are one thing and thoughts are something else. So it doesn't work. When you let go of your thinking about and making it a big deal, your emotional upset because your, your lover ran away with somebody else and you're sad and you're depressed and you, you don't like that feeling and you get run to a doctor and get uh, some kind of medicine to overcome this depression. And that dulls you, so you wind up walking around like a, a zombie or you get into alcohol and that's just as destructive. But when you use this method that I'm teaching, you're letting go of the craving. Now, Buddha Dasa in Thailand, he, he gave, he was very famous in Thailand. He gave a discourse on having a cool mind. And when you let go of craving, you have a cool mind. So, when you're using this, your mind becomes cool. You start losing the equi the imbalance, the emotional upset, the anger, the disappointment, the frustration, the sadness, the fear, whatever it happens to be. These start to fade away as you recognize them. See, that's the first part of the six R's, being able to recognize that your mind is distracted. 
don't get involved with it. Don't make a big deal out of the distraction. It's just a distraction. I had a lady that she had oh, terrible uh, anxieties and she would get caught by these and she would stay anxious for three or four days before she and she would hide and go into her room, leave me alone, I don't feel good, that, that kind of thing. She came to a talk that I was giving and she was listening to what I was saying and she had this anxiety attack and she was breaking out in a sweat and she was in the middle of a group of people so she she didn't want to get up and, and leave. And she started thinking, well, this monk says that if you treat it this way, that it works. See, the biggest part of depression, anxiety, whatever you want to call it, is the, the trying to push it away and control it with your thoughts. But when you use the six R's, you're letting go of that kind of distraction and you're purifying your mind. So after about two minutes, her anxiety went away. And she was like completely amazed by that. Uh, a lot of soldiers come back from fighting wherever they are and they had to do a lot of things that aren't very necessarily very nice and they have PTSD and they, they want to get rid of it. Well, if they use the same method, it works 100% of the time if you use it correctly. You don't use this as something to try to block things away, you let things be. You don't get involved with it. You don't make a big deal out of anything. And the more you get less excited and identifying with that problem, the more you become calm and alert and happy. So it really does work this way. And there's people that come and they have to take some heavy drugs because of imbalance. But when they come and practice, I tell them, don't, don't stop taking the drugs. Keep taking whatever you're supposed to be taking. That's for the doctors to decide. But I teach them how to smile and smile all the time. Now, the thing with smiling is the more you smile, the sharper your mindfulness becomes, the lighter your mindfulness becomes, the more joy you have in your mind. So when you smile all the time, then you're pulling your mind up and these PTSD and other things start to fade away because you're not making a big deal out of it in your mind anymore. How much you hate yourself for doing what you did or hate somebody else because they did something to you. It's whatever it happens to be. So it's a real um, 
important part of the practice to learn what craving is and how to let it go. And how much pain it causes you. So I've talked for a long time again. <laughs> yeah, that's very interesting. Thank you. You don't have to worry about talking for a long time. That's the point. That's the point of what we're doing here <laughs> is for you to talk. Um, could you talk a little about the, you've mentioned uh, Sotapanna, the so-called stream winner or stream attainer. Yeah. Um, could you talk about the uh, different levels beyond that? What, what, is, what does it mean to be a stream, a uh, stream anchor anchor. or attainer? And what, and, and what are the levels beyond that? Okay. Uh, the stream enterer is uh, is Sotapanna, and one of the things it says in the suttas is that when you become a stream enterer, you have given up an ocean of suffering. You're not going to be reborn less than a human being. You're probably going to be reborn in a, in one of the heavenly realms. Now, uh, you will become, you still can break precepts, but you're going to start feeling really, really guilty about that. So you need to go to a spiritual friend and tell her that she broke a precept, killing, stealing, wrong sexual activity, cursing. That's one of the big ones these these days. The foul language that's being used world, worldwide is shocking. And when you do that, you don't have love in your mind at that time. Generally, when you're cursing, you're you have a lot of hatred. But each level of meditation has two parts to it. You have the path knowledge, and then you have the fruition knowledge. When you get to the fruition knowledge, that like it sets everything really well. And then you become much more aware, and you become uh, generally more happy. But you're still going to go through your ups and downs and sort of thing. You won't get caught for as long. And you're just generally going to be happier. You're going to pay more attention to the colors of the world around you. And, and it just uh, things get more 3D-like. Second stage of awakening called Sotapanna, the most times you're going to come back to the human realm is seven times. When you be, get to be a Saktagami, you're only going to come back at the most times one more time. This is where lust and hatred become quite a bit weaker, and you have more and more balance in your mind. You're still going to have the ups and downs, but they're not going to be as radical. 
it's not like losing control or something like that when when you have uh, anger or dissatisfaction come up but you're going to have more balance with that and you're going to catch it more quickly and then uh, the fruition it helps settle with that the next stage is called anagami and anagami literally means no returner you're ne never going to be reborn in the human realm again this is where you give up all lust and hatred it doesn't even come into your mind anymore now this lust and hatred is replaced with gratitude and loving kindness and uh, never having to get angry at anyone again think about being a father raising his kids and he never gets yelled at they sit down and talk to them, make sure that they don't do things that are going to harm themselves. But uh, I have a few students that have kids and they, uh, they're amazed at, at how nice and gentle they are because kids follow the parents. They follow the example of the parents. And when the parents are even balanced all the time they tend to be even balanced all the time even though they might get excited with sports and that sort of thing now you're not going to have any more sexual activity and lust is too coarse a thing to come up into your mind now, I've been around my my students that are anagami, and I, I was around Deepama, who was a lady from India that got very famous as being an, uh, an anagami. And I asked them, what's in their mind? And they said, loving kindness, mindfulness, nice equanimity and good collectedness of mind. I don't use the word concentration because that implies one pointed concentration. It's a different kind of concentration. So I use collectedness, which means your mind is composed very much at ease, very alert, sometimes very still. So when people can get to this stage, they can attain what is called the cessation of perception, feeling, and consciousness. It's called Nirodha Samapati in Pali. And they can sit for a long time without having any consciousness arise. Now, when I say long time, I mean... Um, there's sometimes I tell a student, well, I want you to sit for two days. And they can. Uh, it's up, you can sit up to seven days. 
And that's what uh, Deepama, this Indian lady, did. And I asked her why. And she gave me a one-word answer. Think of not having anything disturb mind at all for seven days. Now you sit, your heart doesn't beat, you don't breathe anymore. Family members can get upset and think you're dead because they don't hear the heartbeat. And uh, there, there's just amazing relief. But when you come out of that state, it feels like you've been in that, in that state for maybe uh, 15 minutes. And you've been sitting for six or seven days. <laughs> <laughs> and your mind is exceptionally clear, very happy. And then you have to take care of your bodily functions, whatever needs to be done. Now, on, on, on Anagami, uh, I don't have any students that have gone any further than this. And there's not that many students that actually have attained this. It's, it's quite a high degree of awareness. And I've told all of the students that I have that if they become an, an arahat, then I want to be their first student. And I want to study with them the finer points of things that I don't understand yet. So. You might mention to him that we're going to have some of these students uh, have some neuroscience research to actually. Uh, we're we're going to have some neuroscience uh, uh, investigators, I guess you would call them. Uh, they're, they're going to, we're setting up meetings for some of the people that have become anagami so they can see what's happening in mind. And they're going to be shocked by it because of the relaxing, the continual relaxing that's always happening. Now I'm seeing that uh, the time is getting that I'm going to have to go for lunch. And I'm sorry for that. Maybe some other time we can talk again. Yeah, that would be excellent. Thank you so much. This has been so fascinating. And I understand that hmm. you are offering online retreats also. Is that correct? Yes. Damasuka.org. O-R-G. Mm -hmm. I'll put a link to that in the show notes below. They can listen to all the Dhamma talks that I give on uh, on YouTube. Yeah. There's a lot there, that's so, for sure. Well, Bante Vimalaramsi, thank you very much. You're very welcome. I wish everyone happiness. Sadhu. Thanks, guys, and you're having fun. Thank you for listening to another Guru Viking podcast. For more interviews like these, as well as articles, videos, and guided meditations, visit www.guruviking.com. <laughs>